All right, uh, while you're sitting, I want you to do something. We're going to do a live illustration today. If you have any money anywhere to be found, take it out. Some U.S. currency. Don't be afraid. We've already taken up in the offering. It's all right. Okay. Now, I want you to notice if your neighbor holds, is holding a $100 bill, you know who's taking you out to lunch, okay? Take some U.S. currency out. Fourth of July, we're going to be a little bit more relaxed today. Fourth of July, looking at our currency. Everybody got a piece of uh, some sort of paper or coin in your hand? There is something that is similar in all U.S. currency that you will find. And there's many, several things that are in sort of... In, in all of our currency, but there's one particular thing that I want us to take a look at. I want you to take a look at inside of that. I've got a $20 bill. The words, lunch is on doc, huh? Thank you, Bob. Lunch is on me today. We want to invite you to our Family Life Center down here, and uh, I will treat every one of you to lunch, so come on down. It won't cost you a thing. Notice on this $20 bill the words, in God we trust. In God, we trust. If you have a coin, is it on the coin as well? I'm putting this safely in my pocket, Bob, so uh, I've traveled with you before. I know how cash disappears. The use of the phrase, in God, we trust, in U.S. currency first appeared in 1864. When Simon Chase, Lincoln's Secretary of the Treasury in the middle of the Civil War, received a letter from a Pennsylvania minister requesting some recognition of God in a national motto. The phrase found its way onto all U.S. currency in the thick of the, of the Cold War around the same time that under God was also added to the Pledge of Allegiance. As a part of the cultural war on, on godless communism, 1955 congressional vote elected to place the motto on the U.S. currency. And I think it finally found its way on all U.S. currency in 1957. And there have been a lot of debates, there's been a lot of discussion, there's been a lot of lawsuits to try to take out under God we trust in our Pledge of Allegiance, but also to take out in, I mean, under God in our, in our Pledge of Allegiance and in God we trust off of our money, our currency. And there's a current lawsuit going on right now. But I ask you that to think about for just a minute as we take a look at this currency and this, this one statement that is common in all U.S. currency is the question is, does that really mean that we place our trust in God? To have it on your currency, to have it written on a piece of paper or coin and put that in your pocket or use it to make trans transactions to, to buy and to sell. Does that really make a difference in how we live for God if we have on our currency, in God we trust? Does it really? If we hold it, if we see it, if we say it, even if we believe it, does that really transcend over into the lifestyle choices that you and I make every single day in our lives? I'm convinced we can see it, we can hold it, we can touch it, we can even say it, we can even claim to believe it, but unless we really live it, it doesn't really make difference at all, does it? In God we trust. And I'm convinced that our nation, as a nation, no longer puts its trust in God. And with unprecedented magnitude, 
I see more and more people putting their trust in government or in man rather than in God. And many of us believe that if we have the right kind of government, we would have the right kind of country. But I believe if we have the right kind of church and the right kind of trust in Christ or in God, we will then have the right kind of families that will raise the right kind of children that will have the right kind of country. We too often put our faith in our country rather than in our Christ. Our hope is not in our country. Our hope is not in government. Our hope is in Jesus Christ and in God the Father and his spirit. And we as a nation are never going to see the revival that I believe God wants to bring into our nation unless we as a nation begin to revert back to the, to the days of old and put honestly, truly our trust in Christ. And so in God we trust. Is it just a statement or is it a lifestyle choice? I believe we're under perilous times. I believe we're in tough times of trial. We're going to begin a series next Sunday about that in Acts chapter 4, about, about persecution that, that comes against the church in the book of Acts. And as we begin that, we're going to see how tough times of trial and trouble are going to come upon the church. And I believe as we get closer and closer to the end times, those troubled times are going to once again begin to afflict the church. And there is one who wants the church to fail. There's one who wants to cease our message from being proclaimed and many from hearing it so they can receive it. And he will stop at nothing in order to make sure that that witness is squelched, that the gospel is no longer effective so that the church becomes powerless in its mission to take the gospel to the world and so we're going to take a look at how we begin then as a nation as a church as a people of God to not just see it not just touch it not just say it but to really put our trust in God in these perilous troubled times that I believe are coming and I find tucked away in this beautiful passage in 1 Samuel chapter 8, a nation named Israel who ceased to put their trust in God. Yes, a nation that God selected to be his own people, a nation that he did everything possible that a divine, sovereign God could do to bring his people out of bondage, out of slavery, into the promised land and would eventually reject God and turn their back on him and choose to place their faith in someone else other than him. And that my friends, was the downfall of the nation of Israel, which resulted in catastrophic consequences that I believe are reflective of our nation, the United States of America, today. Because just because we have in our Pledge of Allegiance under God doesn't make us under God. Just because we have on our currency in God we trust doesn't mean that our trust is in God. So how then do we build in our lives some disciplines so that we as Christians can put our trust in God in troubled times? I want to look at seven disciplines that are very important. We're going to take a look at them very quickly. So let's write them down. Principle number one, discipline number one, I must consider God's providence. I must consider God's providence. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 8 verses 1 through 3. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abiha, Abijah, Abiwa, whatever you want to say. And they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in the ways, but turned aside after gain, and they took bribes and perverted 
justice. It's interesting that God begins in this opening chapter following an incredible revival in chapter 7 with this incredible statement, divinely inspired by God, I believe this was Samuel, who recorded for us exactly the circumstances and situations that are going on in this particular period of 1 Samuel chapter 8. Samuel, under inspiration of the Spirit of God, says that he was old. Now, how, how old is old, Brother Denny? 70's pretty old? <laughs> Are you past 70? No? Getting close? All right. Bob, how old is old since you've been heckling me this morning? I'm glad you didn't say 60 because I'm there, right? Thank you. I appreciate that. How old is old? Clarence, how old is old? 112. I like that. You know, when you think about Abraham, who was called by God at 75, and you think about Moses, who was called by God at 80, does being old disqualify you from leadership? I said, does being old disqualify you from leadership? No. Or we'd have a lot of old people in here who would be disqualified. Age does not disqualify you. And Samuel was simply an old guy who had been in leadership for quite some time. He was, a, he was a spiritual man who had been called and anointed and selected by God to lead the nation of Israel spiritually, and he led the nation well. Now, there was a problem with that, though. He had two sons, and he appointed those sons to be judges. They were ones who sat in the judicial system and a part of the nation of Israel. And, and uh, he just sort of, you know, he wanted his sons to follow in his footsteps and he wanted his sons to, and so he, he, not God, appointed them to this judicial post in which they had power and authority to sit over judication, to, to, to render what is right and what is wrong in a judicial court of law. And they were judges and they wore the robe and everything and had a position of prominence and position and authority and power. And these, these two men, though, unlike their father, notice that they were judges, but yet his sons did not walk in his ways. Let me remind you, those of us who are parents and those of us who are soon to be parents, maybe some of you are waiting to be married, <clears throat> but one of these days you will marry and you will have children and you will select a name. And the importance of selecting a name for your child is huge. And you may or may not agree or disagree right off the bat with your parents, but most Grandparents today, new grandparents, don't normally get the name until after the birth, right? Because there's going to be a lot of conflict and controversy a lot of times. And I have yet to have any grandchild named Charles. I don't know why, but it's just not happening. <laughs> but just because you name your child by a biblical name does not ensure that they will be godly people. Joel is a godly name. Abiva is a godly name. They have godly definitions. But naming your child a godly name does not guarantee that they will be godly because these two boys did not follow in the ways of their father and their father was a godly man and he followed in the ways, the will, and in the word of God. And why do we know that? Because God records it for us here. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways but turned aside after gain. They turned away from God for what? Filthy lucre for personal gain. They were what's in it for me. 
And they discredited the things and the ways of God because they didn't see any benefit or any blessing or any advancement in that. And they turned from that. They, they discounted the spiritual advancement and turned to the physical. And they were seeking personal gain, even at the expense of those that were under their authority because they took bribes. You were in his court and you had a matter to be considered before the court and you argued your case and they argued their case. You go in the back room and the one who gave these boys the highest bidding would get a favorable outcome. Does that sound like America today? Come on, does it? The rich never seem to go to jail. And notice they had perverted justice. They were turning wrong into right and right didn't matter. And God is well aware of what is going on. People, this is in the scope of God's providence. God is not an absentee landlord. He has not vacated his throne here in 1 Samuel chapter 8. He is on the throne. He is, he is the judge of all judges. He is the supreme ruler. He is the one who is sovereign. And he is well aware of what's going on. Nothing takes God by surprise. Did you know that? God never has an oops moment where I made a mistake. God put Samuel where he was, and God knew that Samuel had placed his two sons there outside, possibly of his will, maybe in the center of his will, but they didn't follow the ways of Jehovah. They didn't follow the word of God. They were corrupt. They were self-interested. Do you think God didn't know that this was going on? This helps us understand as it begins to describe what's happening in 1 Samuel chapter 8. God already knows the course or the circumstance or the situation of the nation. He knows he is not an absentee landlord. He is not looking the other way. God is well aware. And I'm convinced that many times we have this tendency when we evaluate our circumstance and our situation and we see our troubled times, we think somehow God doesn't see our infirmity. God doesn't know our heartache. God doesn't understand our plight when the whole time God is exactly where he is, he knows exactly what's going on, and he is Lord. He may not be acting in our timing. He may not be acting in our, our time frame. He may not be doing it the way that we want, but he is not unaware of who you are, where you are, and what you're going through today. And that's good news for me, because I know if he is on the throne, and he knows who I am and what I'm going through, salvation is closely behind that. Maybe not exactly the way I want it in the time frame that I want it, but it's coming. And so when we put our trust in God, we need to understand that I need to always consider, as I put my trust in God, God knows who I am, where I am, and what I'm going through. Why? Because that increases my trust in him. Number two, I need to contest self-diagnosis. Everybody in this room is an expert. Seriously. We're all experts. And we believe, physician, heal thyself, right? But notice the text. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. He describes the leaders here. They're elders of Israel. They themselves were leaders by their own right. They were appointed by Samuel and by God to be leaders of their tribe or their area. And they gathered together. You know, this is the meeting before the meeting. I was pastoring a church, my first church, 
in Haslett, Texas that doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> Some pastor decided to relocate it, and when he relocated, it died. And, but nevertheless, and, and I was a young pastor. I was in my late 20s, but it wasn't very long till I realized the deacons meeting actually happened by the barbed wire fence in the field at one of the deacons' homes before the deacons' meeting. You know what I'm saying? So uh, it, it was happening before. And so what's happening here is one of those times. It's the meeting before the meeting that they're going to get together, you know, at the barbed wire fence out in the field, and they're going to sit down and talk about the circumstance or analyze the situation. They're going to talk about what needs to be done. They're going to talk about Samuel and why he isn't doing what they think needs to be done. And they're going to then build their case to bring Samuel, the, their case together as unified, saying, Samuel, this is what you need to do. So here's the meeting before the meeting. These leaders get together, and then they look for Samuel. They came to Samuel in Ramah. That's the place where he lived. They came to his residence. And notice what happens. They tell him, behold. Let us tell you something you don't know, Samuel. You're old. You're old, dude. Now, what does that mean? You're no longer capable of being our leader. You're old. We have concluded that you are no longer capable of being our leader. And your sons, by the way, well, they, walk, they don't walk in your ways. They're crooked as, as, as crooked can be. See, what they have done is they have self-diagnosed not only the problem, but the solution. They were not necessarily wrong in the problem, but they were wrong in the solution. People, perception is not always reality. Let me say that again. Perception, our human perception, is not always reality. Because you see, we don't see clearly. We have this view that's down here on earth when God has this view that's from heaven. And from heaven, he can see it all at the same time. The past, the present, and the future. Our perspective is flawed. Our perspective is filled with carnality. Our perception is filled with what we want and what we think God needs to do. And we self-diagnose many times what we believe God needs to do. And what we do then in most of our prayers in that self-diagnosis, our prayers are often filled with, God, you need to do this. You need to do that. Rather than coming to God in prayer and his word and saying, God, what are you speaking into my life and what is it that you want to do with me and in this circumstance before we diagnose the condition and diagnose the result? Notice number three. Well, trust contest. It lows. It pushes against this human tendency that we have for self-diagnosis. Number three, it combats comparisons. There's nothing worse than comparisons, really. And, and young people are filled with it, but so are we who are older. We are filled with comparisons because we like to compare our circumstance with someone else's circumstance. And guess what? I often have a tendency to see theirs as better than mine. Why is that? Because we don't know all the intricacies of their circumstance. We don't see behind the scenes. We don't know what is going on in closed doors. And we make assumptions, remember, that's assumptions, that their circumstance is easier or better than ours. And we compare. Notice the comparison that's going on here. 
Verse 6, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. When Samuel heard what, what his peeps wanted, they wanted a king. Dude, I'm tired of you. We want a king. They had no right to, to, to replace Samuel. They could have replaced the sons, but why Samuel? But, and that displeased Samuel. He felt maybe somewhat rejected, but maybe disappointed too at the spiritual condition of the people that he was leading. Give us a king to judge us. They wanted a king to judge them. They were tired of God sitting in judgment of them. Sound familiar, America? We're tired of God's standard. We're, we're tired of God being under God's authority and under his word. We want a king. What is a king? It is a human. It is a male monarch who is the authority over the people that he sits over in his kingdom. They wanted a male kingdom. They were looking to a man rather than to God. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say. Samuel's discipline is continual throughout his life. He goes to the Lord in prayer after receiving the news. And uh, he's not quite happy about it. And uh, the Lord tells him, How hey, I want you to obey what the people have asked. Obey what people. But God just finally says, you know what? I'm sick and tired of these people. Just give them what they ask for. Wow. Has God ever done that to you? Finally given to you what you've been asking for? When the whole time he's been trying to say, that's not my will for your life. That's not my way. That's not what I, I want or wish or desire for you. And yet you continue to persist. Okay, okay, here it is. We must consult divine counsel when we finally come to the realization that God is, 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 is pushing our, our faith to the limit, our trust to the limit. There is a consultation in which we come to him in prayer and we say, Lord, thy will be done. I don't understand the circumstance. I don't understand the situation. I don't know how I got here, but Lord, I'm going to bring to you this problem, this circumstance, this situation, and I'm going to listen until you speak. How much of our counsel with God is more talking than listening? Seriously? How much of it? 90% of it, I guarantee you, of mine is talking. How about yours? We listen very little. And Samuel is coming to God, and he's asking God for a situation to be remedied by him, and he's revealing to them him something that God already knows, and he's waiting on God to give him the wisdom that he needs. And God finally gives it, and he says, Hey, Samuel, give them what they want. Give them what they want. And Samuel wasn't going to do anything until he consulted with God. I'm convinced that's what trust does. It doesn't move until you hear from God. Number five, we need to then check our commitment. There needs to be, got to go to number five on mine. I don't know where you are up here, 
and I'm, you're wrong down here. Thank you. Number five says I need to check my allegiance. To check my allegiance. Trust is constantly checking on one's allegiance. Am I devoted to the king of kings the way I should? Because when I don't trust him, it's more than likely I have strayed from him and my devotion and my loyalty to him isn't what it needs to be. Notice in verse 7, the second part, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all that the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods so that they are also doing to you. Notice the revelation. Hey, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Samuel was God's prophet. He was appointed and anointed by God to speak to the people. He was God's voice. And he would commune with God and God would show him and reveal to him the ways of the people and the ways of God and how they could follow him. And, and now Samuel's saying, Lord, they're rejecting me. He said, no, 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 Samuel, let me reveal something. They're not rejecting you. you they're rejecting me. Because in rejecting God's spokesman or God's prophets or God's word, you reject the Lord. And they were rejecting him from being king over them. They didn't want God to be Lord over them. They wanted to do human things on a human level. They wanted humanity to interpret and define what was acceptable and what wasn't acceptable. And we live in a culture today is no longer looking to God and wanting to be under God's authority, but is wanting to be our own authority. It's not just happening in government. It's not just happening in our society. It is happening in our church because I read just recently that the percentage of people who, who are no longer buying into the standards of God in morality and social aspects about how we live out our lives, they're, they're, they're all of a sudden being more negotiable than they've ever been before. And the percentage of those of us who say God is not our supreme authority anymore, our society is, and what God used to define what is acceptable has been redefined. Because you see, we as our own authorities redefine what God says is actually true. And so God is a little bit disappointed, obviously. He said, man, after all I brought them through, they were enslaved in Egypt and I brought them out of slavery and gave them the freedom that they have. And now they have rejected me and they are rebellious toward me. And you see, when we get to the point where we're having a trust factor, when, I'm, when I am beginning to wane in my trust of God, when I see my circumstance in what it is, and I try to resolve it myself and bring God my solution through self-diagnosis, and, and, and I get frustrated with him, I need to look internally because more than likely I'm the one that's walked away from God because God's committed to never walk away from me or from you or for us but, but we are the ones who have moved it's kind of like that couple you know they were in the truck they got married and they drove off in the sunset and in his truck and they were side by side <laughs> You know, and they had all the bells and whistles and all the stuff making noises. They were not just married, painted all over the truck, you know, and all that. And about 40 years later, they were driving in the same truck. This guy didn't get rid of anything. Probably kind of like Donnie. If you've seen his truck, you need to see his truck. And um, she's way over here, and he's over here driving, and she's way over here. 
And she said, honey, remember when we got married? Yeah, honey, I do. When we drove off, yeah, we were side by side. He said, yeah, I remember. She said, what, what happened? He said, well, I don't know what happened to you, but I'm still here. You're the one that moved. The last time I checked, you can't drive from way over here. Although I've seen Bob drive, and it might be from that direction. I'm just kidding. I just lost a church member. Number six. Trust. When I have a hard time with trust, I want to take a look and examine my life and say, Lord, have I moved away? Have I moved away? Because more than likely the problem's with me. Number six, count the cost. I need to count the cost. Know the consequences. See, trust understands that if I veer away and I move away from God, there are going to be consequences to the lifestyle choices that I'm going to make. And while God can forgive, there are often consequences that he does not and cannot erase. And many of us live with a lifetime of regret because we have made choices that have rendered circumstances or or consequences in our lives that just seem to haunt us. And yet we struggle with, Lord, if you've forgiven me, why haven't you removed the consequence? But consequences are often never erased when we make bad choices. Notice verse 9. Now then, obey other voice. Obey their voice, God says. Samuel, now I want you to obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. I'm going to give you a mission. I want you to obey them, but I want you to warn them. A solemn warning. Serious. Be solemn. Don't be playful, but warn them. Not only warn them, but show them. Proclaim to them the ways of the king and what he shall do when he reigns over them. It's almost like a warning of circumstances, situations of what's going to happen. Patty and I were on the way to church this morning, and there was a, there was a, uh, a turtle that was crossing the street. And I, I swerved to miss him, and he had about, oh, maybe two or three feet to go, and there was a whole line of cars behind me. And I turned to her, and I said, I bet he doesn't make it to crossing, crossing the road. What are the chances of that? If only I could have stopped and warned him. The consequences of choosing this side of the road when he's on this side of the road. Say, I think I'll walk across this and make it. You're going to wind up toast, man. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord. Notice his mission to the people who were asking for a king from him. And he said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. I don't have time for all the verses to read. I wish I did, but I don't. But he says six times, it's going to cost you something when you do this. The king is going to take things from you. He's not to give anything to you. He's going to take things from you. It's not about you receiving. It's about you giving. And you're going to give not out of joy, but you're going to give out of compulsion. He's going to demand it of you. And you are going to give far more than you're going to get in exchange. You are delusional people. And people who somehow can't see the consequences of the choices they're going to make and the cost of that do walk around in somewhat of a cloudy fog of delusion thinking that, you know what? It's going to be great. When a spokesman of God and a prophet can see according to the word and the will of God, It's not going to be great because life is never greener on the other side of that fence in that other pasture. When you're in this pasture and you're looking over the picket fence and you're saying, hey, that pasture is greener over there. Do you know why it's greener over there? You know why it's greener over there? 
There's a septic system over there. Yeah. And from here, you can't smell it. But you jump that fence and get over there and start walking, and it's going to go up to your knees in stuff you're not going to like smelling, and you're not going to like cleaning off your shoes. Turn down to verse 18, all the way down to verse 18. And in that day, you will cry out. Notice what the prophet is saying. There'll come a day you're going to cry out because of your king. You're going to cry out to me because of the very thing that you're asking for, and I'm going to give it to you. You're going to wish you didn't have it. Whom you have chosen for yourself. This is not my will, but this is your will. And because you will it, I'm going to will to give it to you, and I'm going to give you your own way so that through that I can glorify myself because the Lord will not answer you in that day. Nothing worse than having the Lord not answer a cry for help when the very reason why you're in that place is because of rebellion toward God. That doesn't mean that God won't hear them and God won't feel pain when they feel pain and have compassion and empathy on them. But it means that God's going to let them waddle a little bit in their own self-pity because you see there's a lesson through that and it will bring them to ultimately glorify the Lord. Number seven, I need to only count the cost. And when I have a hard time, when I'm in a rock and a hard place and I have a hard time trusting God, I need to consider, okay, trusting him. I, I need to trust him because uh, it, going God's way is better than going my way. <laughs> and I'm going to trust that even though I may not see clearly the benefits and the blessing of going God's way, I'm going to go God's way in spite of my self-analysis and my self-diagnosis. I'm going to choose God and believing and trusting in him that it's going to be beautiful. Number seven and number last, trust is built when I commit to God's leading, when I commit to God leading my life. When I just blindly commit to the Lord leading my life. Notice what happens in verse 19. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us. We also may be like all the other nations, and our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Notice the stubborn rebellion these people refused to obey. They heard the, the prophet proclaim the word of the Lord to them, and they refused to obey it. They listened to it, they understood it, and they just flat out said, no. Not like a toddler, doesn't it? You're in a grocery store and you're about to check out and they put all that candy there, right? And you tell them, not for you. And they go, no, I want it. And they're insistent. No. There shall be a king over us. We want to put ourselves under the authority of another human being like us so that we might be like all the other nations. These people were, were giving up their distinctiveness because they wanted to be like everybody else. The church, the Christian, isn't to look like everyone else. We have clear distinctives that have been laid out for us by God himself that separates us from the world. This is not our home. We don't belong here. And we look different, we act different, we think different, we believe different. Our lives have been transformed by the power of the gospel through the spirit of Christ. We're different. We're aliens, foreigners. 
in a land that's not really ours to belong to. But our king may judge us. But notice interesting now they add to this that he can fight our battles for us. Can another human being fight your battles for you? Seriously? No. God has fought all of their battles for them. He brought them out of Egypt. Remember when the Pharaoh wouldn't let his people go and he brought the plagues and he fought the battle and finally Pharaoh, boom, he let them go. When they had their backs up against the, 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 the sea or the water and Pharaoh was coming, he put a fire there, right, and kept him and he parted the waters. Who did all that? God did. And they walked across on dry land. Who fought their battles when they finally crossed over the Jordan and into the promised land and the people that were occupying the land were, were, were great giants, the obstacles beyond their own imagination and how in the world were they going to fight them? And they walked around the city of Jericho seven times and what happens? Who did that? God has been doing all of this the whole time and he's been fighting their battles for them and now they're saying, we don't want you to fight our battles for us, God, anymore. We want this human being over here to fight our battles for us. I don't care who comes against the church and who comes against you, God and God alone is capable and will fight your battles for you. Put your trust in him and in no one else and nothing else, especially not a human government. And then lastly, when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he'd had enough. And he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. I scratched my head and I'm getting too many people that would tell me why they thought this happened and I can just think, think the same as just, he's beyond himself. God, I, I just can't believe these people would, would do this to you. I can't believe that they're asking for this of all the consequences and the cost. And they're just insane. They won't listen, God. Are you sure you want me to tell them yes to this request? Are you sure? It's almost like him pleading with God. Are you sure? Confirm for me. Give me clarity that this is your will. And I think that's a huge principle here that before we take any action, it's important to to seek clarity from God and wisdom from him to make sure that we are sure. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voices and make them a king. Yes, Samuel. And so Samuel does this strategic thing. He says to them, go every man to his own city. He's not being disobedient here. He's just wanting hot heads to cool. Give some time. I've heard what you said. Go back to your tribes. Go back to your clansmen. Give me some time. Maybe there was something in Samuel's heart that was hoping that time would change things, but time doesn't change things. And eventually, they do get a king. You know what his name was? Saul. What a wicked king. What a self-centered, self-absorbed, egotistical maniac. That they eventually regretted and cried out to God, relieve us of this king. And God raises up David to take his place. But there was a long line of years in which Samuel was their king. That they suffered. I mean Saul, that they suffered under his reign because of the consequences 
of their disobedience. Let me close with this final story. There was a guy who went out on the Rocky Mountains and he was uh, fishing and camping out on his own. He wanted to take some solitude time and so he found a remote place up in the Rocky Mountains and he got a campfire and set up his tent and fished all day long and that night he built a beautiful campfire and was sitting there, you know, uh, cooking the catch of the day and having a great time and all of a sudden to his surprise he heard something coming to him. It seemed pretty large and finally it showed itself as it revealed itself through the moonlight that was a full moon that night he could see that was a large brown bear and it was coming. And so he had heard, you know, different methods of trying to spook off the bear. And so he clapped some sticks together, banged them together. That didn't help. And he stood up, you know, and made some noises. That didn't help. The bear kept coming. Finally, he decided, the only thing I got to do is I got to run. And he took off. Well, the full moon that night, he could see pretty well through the forest. And he was making pretty good time. And he looked back, and the bear was still coming. Relentlessly, the bear was after him, and the faster he ran, the faster the bear came, until finally he came to a cliff, much like, you know, the edge of the cliff, and he looked back, and the bear was still coming, and he looked down, and he couldn't see the bottom of the cliff, and he knew he was in trouble. He was, you know, in that rock and that hard place. There was nowhere to go, and the bear was coming, and finally he could see just a little bit of limb down there that just sort of stuck out, and he said, you know, if I could jump down there and grab onto that limb, maybe I can be safe. He thought about it for a minute. He looked. Sure enough, the bear was coming, so he did what he had to do. He jumped and grabbed onto him, and by luck, he just held onto that stick. The bear was up there, you know, just growling at him for whatever reason, and he was holding on, looking up, you know, and hoping the bear didn't jump too. And and, uh, finally, as he was, you know, just about to give out strength, he noticed that the limb was kind of giving a little bit, and he thought, man, I'm in trouble. Now, this guy wasn't a praying guy, so he decided that he would pray. God, if you're up there, are you listening? I'm listening, the boy said. He was stunned. God's real. He's listening. He said, God, would you help me? Help me. I'll do anything you ask. Just help me, Lord. He said, would you really do everything that I ask? Yes, God. Yes, I'll do anything and everything that you ask. Are you sure that you really trust me? Yes, God, I really trust you. Let go of the branch. If you really trust me. Lord, you know I, I trust you. I haven't been a praying man, but I know that you're real. And if you would just, just Lord, if you, just, are you sure, you know, I'll do anything you ask. Is there anything else I could do? Do you trust me? Yes, God, I trust you. Let go of the branch. There for a while, finally looked up and he said, is there anybody else up there? Trust is an unusual thing, a very difficult thing, a very hard thing to do when you're in the dark, hanging on for your life, not knowing what's below. And yet God says, do you really trust me? Yes, God, I trust you. Are you sure? Yes, Lord, I trust you. Will you do anything that I ask? Yes, Lord, I'll do anything you ask. I will. Just save me, Lord. I'll do anything you ask. And then he tells us what to do. And we go, oh, 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 that's not what I was expecting. That's not the solution that I had imagined. That's not the direction that I want to take. And yet, do we really trust him? So the question as we close is, have you completely put your trust, placed your trust in God? Really? Is it just something we have on our, our currency? 
something we feel, touch, see, hold, use, even say, or do we really live it? Let's pray.